This morning we are returning to the book of Acts after a break of several weeks. We're coming in very near the end of the book. We're going to be looking at chapters 25 and 26. If you're using the church Bible, that's page 1122. Beginning at the beginning of chapter 25. And we're in the section of the book that could be called Christianity on Trial. In the final seven chapters, Paul appears before crowds and governors and rulers, giving a defense of Christianity. And during all of it, Paul is a prisoner. He's a prisoner who's being held unjustly. Last time we were in Acts, we saw Paul on trial before the Roman governor Felix. And then the end of chapter 24 told us that Felix was succeeded as governor by Festus. But rather than giving Paul justice before he left office, Felix left Paul in prison. And we're told he left him in prison because he wanted to grant the favor to the Jews. And so the new governor, Festus, inherits the Paul problem. Look at chapter 25, verse 1. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus, as a favor to them, to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there if he has done anything wrong. At first, it seems Festus is going to be an improvement on Felix. As soon as he arrives, the Jewish leaders put him under pressure. Transfer Paul, they say, from Caesarea, where he's being held, to Jerusalem. These leaders want to see if they can manipulate the new man in charge. And if he gives in, they have an ambush waiting to kill Paul on the way to Jerusalem. But initially here, it seems, Festus is going to be above the pressure. He says, no, come with me to Caesarea if you're so keen to see Paul. Verse 6, after spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Turns out Festus is no better than Felix. Notice the comment in verse 9. It's the same thing that was said about Felix in chapter 24. Festus also wants to do the Jews a favor. 
Maybe he came into this job full of a bit of bravado. Maybe he was determined not to be manipulated. But it's only taken him a few days to see the value of making friends with these Jewish leaders rather than enemies. He knows that he may have to work with these people for years. And so in the interests of smoothing his way politically, Festus decides to cooperate with the Jewish leaders. And he asks Paul to agree to move the trial to Jerusalem. And immediately Paul realizes he will not get any justice if he stays in this situation. He can see that Festus's priority is making friends with powerful people. And in political terms, Paul is not a powerful person. And so giving Paul justice is not on Festus's agenda. When Paul realizes that, he makes a very bold decision. Paul is a Roman citizen. He knows the Roman law very well. And he makes a legal maneuver to get himself out of this situation. Here we see Paul making a big decision under pressure. Festus has just mentioned moving the trial to Jerusalem. And we read in verse 10, Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. What Paul does here is a very risky move. The Caesar at this time is Nero. And if you know anything at all about Nero, you'll know that he was a nasty piece of work. He was corrupt. And actually, he was also stone-cold crazy. Paul surely knew that his appeal to Caesar might turn out to be a case of jumping from the frying pan into the fire. But Paul is under great pressure here. He may well suspect that the Jews have a new plot to kill him. Remember, they had a similar plan back in chapter 23. And it's quite possible Paul had also found out about this second plot, just as he found out about the first one. So Paul decides it's better for him to take the initiative rather than sitting waiting for the Jews to take the initiative. He decides to move himself out of Festus's hands in Caesarea and into Nero's hands in Rome. And Festus cannot turn down Paul's appeal. In fact, he's only too happy with the chance to get Paul off his hands. Nero can decide what to do with him. But in order for that to happen, Festus has a problem to sort out first. So far, he has no evidence at all that Paul has done anything wrong. The only reason Paul is still a prisoner is because Festus is holding him illegally as a favor to the Jews. He can't tell that to Nero. But at the same time, he can't send a prisoner to Nero without explaining why the man is a prisoner. 
Well, very soon, Festus has some visitors who he thinks will be able to help him. Look at verse 13. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. Agrippa's full title is Herod Agrippa II. His great-grandfather was the Herod who had all the babies killed when Jesus was born. You may remember that from the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. This Herod's grandfather was the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. And his father was the Herod who had the Apostle James killed in Acts chapter 12. So this latest Herod has a pretty rotten family history. Bernice, who's mentioned here, is his sister. She lived with him. And it was strongly suspected at the time that they were living in an incestuous relationship. That's a little sketch of Festus's distinguished royal visitors. They've come to welcome him as the new governor. And when they hear about Paul, they get excited about the prospect of some entertainment. After Festus has filled them in on the details about Paul, Agrippa says to him down in verse 22, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officials and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death. But because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. We can be very clear that this is not a trial. For these royals, this is the equivalent of a night at the theater. Paul has been brought on stage as entertainment for royal visitors. Yes, it's true that Festus is asking Agrippa to give his opinion when the show is over, but this is definitely a show. It's not a legal trial. So picture in your mind, just for a moment, a room full of crowns and gowns, the royals on their thrones, the local dignitaries clinking their glasses together, and then picture the main attraction being brought in, a small man with simple clothes, chains on his hands and chains on his feet. I don't know what Agrippa was expecting. Maybe he was expecting a desperate man who would grovel in front of him and ask him for mercy. Maybe he expected an angry man who would rant and rave. But what Agrippa gets is a faithful witness. 
And as we go on in a second to look at these verses, we can learn from Paul's approach here. Because as Christians, we are often seen by society as a pretty good source of entertainment. Think for a moment how Christians are portrayed in TV shows. A Christian character is usually either an unbearable prude or a clueless twit or a sinister fraud. And bearing that in mind, it's not surprising that when people find out we're Christians, they may well make assumptions about us. That we're going to be as strange as the fictional Christians they've seen on TV. Now, we can't help it if people look to us as entertainment. But what we can give them is something much better. We can live our lives as faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul does here. And he does it in two main ways. First, he makes the point that Christianity is a big story, not a short-lived one. Now, I'll try and explain what I mean by that. It's popular today to look at Christianity as something that began with Jesus' followers. And on that basis, people try to explain it away. But the story of Christianity has far deeper roots than that. It's not so easily explained away. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were the continuation of a long-term project. It was a project that had begun thousands of years before Jesus in the Old Testament. The story of Christianity is a big, big story. God unfolded his plan over many generations. And it's not so easy to sweep away and explain away that big story. Look how Paul puts it beginning in chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Paul is being opposed by the Jewish leaders. But his point is, I'm the true Jew. I'm the one standing in the line of all the ancient promises. And the ancient hopes of Israel, all those are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, my accusers are the ones abandoning the big, 
unfolding story that Israel was part of. They are opting out of what God is continuing to do. He's moving his plan forward through Jesus Christ. And they refuse to go with him. One commentator sums up Paul's point like this. The true Jew must become a Christian in order to remain a Jew. In other words, the true man or woman of God will not only accept God's Old Testament promises, they will also accept the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus. In many ways, we live today in a throwaway society. It can seem sometimes that things are changing so fast it's impossible to keep up. Things become out of date in a matter of months instead of years. But as a result of that, many people are looking for something that's solid and permanent in the midst of all the change. People are hungry for something that's transcendent. Something big and trustworthy that stands above all the trends and the fads. Something that has roots. They're looking for Christianity. They may not realize it, but they are. They may be poking around in lots of other things, maybe paganism or Eastern religions or other kinds of spirituality. But the big transcendent story belongs to Christianity. And we need to help people see that. We've noticed before in Acts how the first Christians were constantly going back to the Old Testament to explain Jesus. And I believe we need to follow their example today. We need to show that as Christians we are part of the big story that explains every other story. If men and women are looking for transcendence, we can introduce them to it. That's why it's so important, for example, to go back to the early chapters of Genesis. Not so that we can have debates about science so much, but to show that the Bible explains our human situation, our human predicament. When we see that, then we're ready to see that Jesus is God's solution to our predicament. Paul has pointed to the big story of God's unfolding plan. And now he shows what a difference this can make in individual lives. He goes on to give a personal story of transformation and service. This is the third time in the book of Acts that the story of Paul's conversion, his testimony, has been recorded for us. And apart from anything else, that shows us how important the author, Luke, thinks this is. Considering all that went on in the early church, it's pretty obvious that plenty has not been told us by Luke. He doesn't have space to tell us everything. So to tell us about the same event three times shows how significant it is. And surely one reason for emphasizing Paul's conversion story is simply that there is great power in personal stories of lives that have been transformed by God. Doesn't it make an impression on us 
when we hear someone tell how God met them and changed them. When someone stands up here, as they did last Sunday night, and gives their testimony, it's usually a memorable occasion. It's a powerful witness to God's power. And so we should be ready and willing to share our story when we get the chance. Not just up on a platform, but in conversation. We glorify God when we let people know the difference God has made and continues to make in our lives. And surely that's why Paul takes every opportunity to share his own testimony. He shared it with the crowd in Jerusalem in chapter 22, and here he shares it with a very different audience. This room full of crowns and gowns in Caesarea. Upper class, well-to-do people. Look at verse 9. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. And my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing all around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I said, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul says, I once stood on the other side of this whole argument. I was doing what these Jewish leaders are now trying to do to me. I was not eager to jump on the Christian bandwagon. I wanted to blow up the bandwagon. But Paul says, God had a different destiny for me. He had a different work for me to do. Notice the words of Jesus in verse 14. At that time, Paul was still going by his Jewish name, Saul. And Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad was a wooden stick with metal spikes. And it was used to prod an animal in the direction you wanted it to go. And obviously, if the animal turned and kicked back against the goad, it was going to hurt itself. So here, Jesus is saying to Saul, if you continue to fight against me by persecuting my church, the outcome is not going to be good for you. You're trying to struggle against God 
and you cannot win. And then Jesus sets out the new life Paul is destined for. No longer a life of opposing God and struggling against him, but a life as a servant of God, an instrument in God's hands to open people's eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Jesus is calling Saul from a life of tearing down and destroying to a life of building and bringing life. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to think about your life. Because the Bible's verdict on your life is that ultimately it's a life of tearing down and destroying. It's a life lived under the power of Satan. Maybe that sounds very offensive to you. Maybe you think there's no comparison between you and Saul. You don't go around persecuting anybody, never mind Christians. But by refusing to accept Christ, you are kicking out against God. Every time you hear the message of your sin and the need to seek salvation in Jesus, every time you hear that, God is prodding you with his goad. He's directing you to the way he wants you to go. And every time you walk away, you are kicking back against him. You are struggling to keep going the way you want to go. And so you are opposing God. You're opposing his purposes. God is working to build and to give life. And by opposing him, you are contributing to tearing down and destroying. Now, you may be doing it in a very quiet, unobtrusive way. You might be doing it with a very pleasant smile on your face. But you are doing it. I would encourage you today to see today as an opportunity to respond to God's prodding. Not by kicking back again, but by going the way he's prodding you. That means owning up to your rebellion against him. It means owning up to your need of forgiveness. And it means trusting in Jesus' sacrificial death as your only way to forgiveness. When we respond that way to God's prodding, we not only receive forgiveness, we receive new life. And we begin a new life of service for God instead of rebellion against him. That's what happened to Paul. He explains it in verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. And I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. 
Paul's life is now devoted to God's program of bringing light and life to men and women who are living in darkness and death. He responded in the right way to God's goading. And now he is an instrument in God's hands. Paul himself is being used by God to prod men and women in the right way. And notice how undiscriminating Paul is in his service. In verse 22, he says he testifies to the good news of Jesus with small and great alike. In other words, the offer of new life in Jesus is an offer for everyone. Christianity is not just for the well-to-do. It's for the small people too. It's for the people who fall through society's cracks. Someone has said the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Meaning when we come and kneel before the cross, none of us are any more advantaged than anyone else. And none of us are more handicapped than anyone else. Both small and great find an equal welcome when they come in repentance and put their faith in Jesus. And that's the irony of this idea we hear today that Christians are small-minded bigots. There may well be some small-minded bigots who claim to be Christians. But the Christian offer of forgiveness goes out equally to all classes, all nationalities. It goes equally to those of every sexual orientation and every religion and those of no religion at all. There is nothing more inclusive than the offer of forgiveness in Jesus. The trouble is when people don't consider themselves to be sinners they tend to take offense at the offer of forgiveness. Accepting forgiveness means admitting your need of forgiveness. And that is the real sticking point for many people. That's the real offense of Christianity. We have to humble ourselves to accept God's forgiveness. Paul has shared his personal experience of God's transforming, life-giving power. And if we have experienced that power in our own lives, we must be also willing to share it with others. We must be willing to explain the difference Jesus has made in our lives, the hope and the purpose that we've found in him. And if we are still resisting God, we must begin to see ourselves as God sees us, as disobedient rebels, That's our first step if we're to move from living under the power of Satan to living under the loving power of God. Unfortunately, Paul's audience here are not willing to take that step. Look at verse 24. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. 
The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. They left the room. And while talking with one another, they said, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. One by one, Paul's distinguished audience stand up and leave. Paul has appealed to them from his heart, but he's left standing alone on the stage still in his chains. Festus' excuse is that he thinks Paul is going insane, he says. What he means is that Paul has gone beyond common sense by pointing to Jesus' resurrection and by saying that that is the proof of the gospel message. Festus is just too skeptical to respond to Paul's appeal. And Agrippa is too embarrassed and proud to respond. This little man in shabby clothes and prisoner's chains has pointed his finger at Agrippa's heart. He has exposed Agrippa's need of salvation. And in his pride, Agrippa stands up and walks away. He will not lower himself to accept the same saviour as this ragged little preacher. Maybe if Paul had been a person of high position, maybe then Agrippa would have been persuaded. But God insists that we humble ourselves if we're going to find forgiveness. When we come to Jesus, we can't come holding on to our own importance or our own achievements. We have to admit that in God's eyes, we are just as shabby as everyone else. We are as needy as the homeless person or the prostitute. And we have to kneel before the same cross they kneel at. Maybe that's why Paul can write elsewhere that not many influential people come to Christ. Not many who are of noble birth come to Christ. Those men and women are just as welcome in Christ's kingdom. The offer of forgiveness is just as much for them as for everyone else. But in order to receive it, they have to lay aside their sense of superiority. They have to admit that in God's eyes, they're as wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked as everyone else. If you are in that situation to any degree, don't miss out on life 
because you're holding on to some sense of proud superiority. Humble yourself and God will raise you up to life. For Paul's audience, this is a missed opportunity. They walk away from Paul's appeal. And they may never get to hear the challenge again. Because Paul is soon going to be leaving for Rome. These verses record for us not only a missed opportunity for Paul's audience, but they also confirm his appointment in Rome. Look again at what verse 32 tells us. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. I remember reading that once years ago and thinking to myself, what a mistake Paul has made. If he hadn't been so hasty and appealed to Caesar, he would probably have been set free at this point. Festus would probably have listened to Agrippa and let him go. But now the legal wheels are already turning. And who knows how long Paul is going to stay a prisoner. Who knows what Nero's verdict will be. What a mistake he made. But that is a mistaken way to understand this passage. In human terms, Paul's decision to appeal to Caesar does look like a big mistake now. But in terms of the kingdom of God... It's all working out perfectly. Back in chapter 23, as Paul lay in the Roman barracks in Jerusalem, God said to him, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The problem is, of course, at that time and ever since that time, Paul has been a prisoner. He can't just pack his bag and head off to Rome. But now... God is using the Roman legal system to get the Romans to take Paul to Rome. And by going to Rome this way, Paul will end up appearing before Caesar. It's highly unlikely he would have got an audience with Caesar any other way. But now, as a prisoner, he will have opportunity to share the gospel with the most powerful man in the world. It may seem to us that Paul made a big mistake. It's even possible that Paul thought that himself. But in fact, all is going according to plan. Paul has devoted his life to serve God, not to fight against God. And he is going right where God wants him, to a ship headed to Rome. Paul is still in chains. But God is not. And if we step back for a moment and apply these two chapters to our own lives, surely they show us that when we commit ourselves to serve God's purposes, then there will never be any dead ends in our lives. There will be no disasters, no failures. Even when it seems that we've made wrong decisions and wrong turns. Even when it seems things are going wrong. We can still be confident God is taking us where he wants us to go. And he is taking us there by the path he has planned for us. 
Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not talking here about sinful decisions we make. God is still at work in those situations too. But that's a topic for another time. If we are applying Paul's situation here, the specific point is this. As we give ourselves to be willing instruments in God's hands, as we give ourselves to serve him instead of resisting him, then we can be confident of this. Our lives may not unfold as we planned. We may not end up serving God in the places or the ways we expected to serve him or even hoped to serve him. But he will use us just the way he wants to use us. We will often get things wrong. We will make decisions that seem really unwise when we look back on them. We will blunder around sometimes. Sometimes it will seem to us that we're doing more harm than good for the kingdom of God. But in all of it, God is getting done what he wants to get done through us. He does not turn down willing servants. He uses them. No matter how much we might frustrate ourselves, we do not frustrate our sovereign God. When we lay our lives at his feet, he will build his kingdom through us. So whatever your situation is, whatever mistakes you think you've made, commit yourself to serving God in the circumstances you find yourself in. Commit yourself to take the opportunities that you have and God will use you. Don't fall for the idea that decisions you've made in the past have closed off your opportunities to serve God. God may have used those things to redirect your service, but he has not decommissioned you. He has work for you to do. You might feel that you're chained by your circumstances, but our God is not chained. Maybe it's time this morning to ask him to help you see the service he has for you. We're going to use our last two songs as an opportunity to recommit ourselves to God. First of all, we'll sing,